Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11, we have one of the most Christological passages in the Bible. And when I use a word like Christological, what I mean by this is that this section of the Bible is rich with truth about Jesus. This passage is overflowing with truth about Jesus. And for this reason, I've entitled this message, The Doctrine of Christ. The Doctrine of Christ. Because when we come to this passage here in Philippians chapter 2, these verses are both doctrinal and doxological. It's doctrinal. You know what the word doctrine means, right? The word doctrine means teaching. And what we have here is teaching about Jesus because what we believe about Jesus is rooted and grounded in what the Bible clearly teaches about him. Listen, I want you to know Jesus this morning. I want you to know what Jesus has done for us this morning. And the verses that we read this morning is all about that. But not only is it doctrinal, it's also doxological. Now, the word doxology means praise. Now, Bible scholars and church historians, they agree that the verses that we read here in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2, that it was a hymn, a sacred song of the first century Christian church. And what we see here is that doctrine should lead us into doxology. And the reason why is because the wonder of Christ always incites the worship of Christ. Amen? If you're learning about Jesus and you don't walk away wanting to worship Jesus, something's wrong. Doxology should always follow doctrine and doctrine should always be followed by doxology. And the goal of this hymn, this sacred song here in Philippians 2 the goal of it is to celebrate Jesus Christ. Now, as we examine Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we're going to focus in on three points. In verses 5 and 6, we'll focus in on the deity of Christ. And then in verses 7 and 8, we'll focus in on the incarnation of Christ and then we'll wrap it up in verses 9 through 11 with the exaltation of Christ, the doctrine of Christ. So let's begin. Number one, the deity of Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I want you to focus in on those words, who being in the form of God. Maybe your translation of the Bible puts it this way, who being in very nature God. I love those words. This is a clear and straightforward statement that Jesus is God. Listen, Jesus is fully, completely, totally God. Jesus is through and through God. He was not merely a good man. 
Jesus was not merely a great prophet. He is not a created God among many other gods. When we speak about Jesus, we are talking about the one true uncreated God. Amen? And the Bible teaches and affirms this fact over and over again. Jot down these references. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. In Colossians 1.15, it says, he, that's Jesus, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Wow. Colossians 2.9. Colossians 2.9. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. One more. 1 John 5.20. I love 1 John 5.20. It says, he, that's Jesus, is the true God and eternal life. Do you understand what this means? When we say that Jesus is God, being God, Jesus, the second person of the one triune God, it means that he is eternal, uncreated. He is holy, sovereign, supreme. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and everywhere present at the same time. He is the maker and the sustainer of all things created, and he is worthy of all worship, and he is worthy of all obedience. And if this is not your Jesus, you have the wrong Jesus. This is who our Jesus is. Now focus in on those words, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Being God, it is not robbery for Jesus to claim to be God. Now again, We're familiar with the word robbery. Robbery means to steal. It means to unlawfully take something that does not belong to you. Now, if this morning I was to say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I have an important announcement to make. Behold, I am God. Obviously, that would be blasphemous, right? Because I am robbing a title a truth that doesn't belong to me. But in this case here in Philippians chapter two, what the author is telling us is that for Jesus to claim to be God, for Jesus to claim to be equal with God, it's not robbery. Why? Because it belongs to him. That's who he is. Jesus has the right to claim to be equal with God because Jesus is God. In John chapter five, verse 18, In John 5, 18, it says, Jesus said that God was his father, listen, making himself equal with God. Now, maybe your translation of the Bible takes those words and translates it this way. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that's a good translation. What that's telling us is that Jesus did not need to grasp after equality with God because he already owned it. And because Jesus was secure in the fact that he is God, he wasn't insecure when he temporarily laid aside his divine privileges when he became human. 
Philippians chapter two, verses five and six teaches us and it reinforces the fact that Jesus is God. So here's the application. What should this truth do for us? What should this truth do in us? Listen, because Jesus is God, we should worship him as God, right? We should worship him as God like the Apostle Thomas. We exclaim and worship to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Our view of Jesus must rise above the ordinary. Our view of Jesus must always be high. It must always be big. Listen, Jesus is not small. Jesus is not common. Jesus is not ordinary. And Jesus is definitely not boring. If your Jesus is boring, you have the wrong Jesus. Jesus is God, and he is worthy of all our praise and all our worship. Who is Jesus? He's God. Number two, the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ in verses seven and eight. It says, but he, Jesus, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now in verses five and six, Philippians two told us that Jesus is God. Now, here in verses 7 and 8, Philippians 2 tells us that God became human. Wow. I can't wrap my mind around that. God became human. The truth stated here in Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8, is the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. The word incarnation means in flesh, in flesh. And the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ is the biblical teaching that God became human. It's amazing to me. God became human. God the Son took to himself an additional nature, humanity. He took to himself this additional nature through the virgin birth. Christ is both fully God and fully man at the same time. And what we have here in Philippians chapter two, verses seven and eight, there are four facts given to us about the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. So here's fact number one. It says, but he made himself of no reputation. Maybe your translation of the Bible says it this way. He emptied himself. This does not mean, it does not, it does N-O-T, not. This does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of deity, nor does it mean that he 
emptied himself of any of his divine attributes. Jesus in his incarnation never stopped being God and he never stopped being omnipotent. He never stopped being omniscient. But what Paul is telling us here is that God in incarnation, he humbly laid aside his own visible glory and the independent use of his divine attributes. Jesus did not stop being God when he became human. He did, however, temporarily, as the New Living, Translate, New Living Translation puts it, he gave up his divine privileges. Fact number two, Philippians 2 tells us that he took the form of a bondservant. These words emphasize the depth and the stretch of Christ's emptying in his incarnation. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, we see Jesus in the form of God. Here in Philippians 2, 7, we see him in the form of a bondservant. You know what a bondservant is? It's a slave. A bondservant is an other's person. A bondservant is someone who gives up his own personal rights and privileges in order to meet the personal needs and desires of others. And as God, listen, there is no one greater than Jesus. And as a slave, there was no one lower than Jesus. He descended from the highest position to the lowest place. That is amazing to me. God became a man who became a slave that serves us. As Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God humbled himself and became a slave to serve us by sacrificially dying for us on the cross. Fact number three. Philippians 2 tells us that he came in the likeness of men. These words teach us that God became fully human. Those words, likeness of men, refers to a human body with human emotions and human capabilities and human weaknesses. You know what the Bible tells us about the man Christ Jesus? When he was here on earth, he saw through human eyes. He heard through human ears. He spoke with a human mouth and he walked on human feet and he touched with human hands. In incarnation, Christ did not lose anything, but he gained something. He gained a human nature. The infinite God became a finite man. God, who is spirit, became a man made of flesh. In fact, number four, it says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The suffering and death of Jesus Christ on the cross demonstrates the humility of God. In Bible times, death on a cross was both painful and shameful. It was painful. 
Every part of crucifixion was designed to provide the greatest human pain possible. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. Think about what Jesus did for us as our servant. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He was arrested, blindfolded, and beaten. His beard was torn from his face. He was scourged with Roman whips. He was mocked and insulted. A crown of thorns was placed on his head. He carried his own cross. His hands and feet were nailed to a cross. He was suffocating on the cross. His heart ruptured while on the cross. And there he became our sin and God poured out his wrath. And Jesus in his own body absorbed the full measure of God's wrath against our sin in his own body. It was painful. It was also shameful. Deuteronomy 21:23 states that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. Hebrews 12:2 tells us that Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. On the cross, the God-man was slandered and humiliated by his enemies. On the cross, the sinless God-man suffered and died like a common condemned criminal. Shameful. And here in Philippians 2.8, there are three facts that are stated about Jesus' death on the cross. I want you to see this. First, Christ died on the cross in human form. It's just being found in appearance as a man. Why did God have to become human? He became human so he could die. How do you kill God? God can't die. That's why God had to become human so he could die. So he could experience the pain and the shame. And in his death, he would purchase salvation and redemption for his people. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10 tells us that. But secondly, the death of Jesus on the cross demonstrated real humility. It says he humbled himself. The death of Jesus on the cross is the greatest example of a selfless, humble, other-centeredness. If you want to know what selfless, humble, other-centeredness looks like, just look at Jesus on the cross. And number three, Christ's death on the cross was an act of obedience to his father in heaven. It says he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The death of Jesus on the cross was the father's idea. The death of Jesus on the cross was the father's will. Isaiah 53 10 says it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. And Jesus submitted to the father's will and obedience and he died on the cross in our place. And this act demonstrated the absolute God-centeredness of his life. So he could pray, not as I will, but as you will. So why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, here in Philippians 2, we see he did it for the benefit of others. First, he did it for God's glory. 
John chapter 17, verse 14 tells us that Jesus' death on the cross was for the glory of God. But secondly, Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our, our eternal benefit. You see, at the cross, Jesus made forgiveness of sin and salvation from God's wrath possible for everyone who trusts in him as his one and only savior. So here's the application. I want you to listen. This is urgent. Here's the application. If you are not a Christian here this morning, Maybe you're here because someone invited you here. Maybe you're here out of curiosity. Maybe you've been coming to Calvary Chapel for a long time, but you've never given your heart to Jesus. Or maybe you're religious, but you don't have a real relationship with Christ. Listen, listen, listen. The application to this is you need to give your heart to Jesus today. What Jesus did at Calvary on a cross 2,000 years ago was for your salvation. It was for your redemption. It was for your forgiveness. It was so that you can go to heaven. He was serving you on the cross. There is no religion in the world that has a God like our God. On the cross, God, the maker of heaven and earth, was serving you. And if you believe that Jesus did all this for you and you start trusting in him as your one and only savior, then God will forgive you of all your sins and secure a place for you in heaven. That's why this is called the gospel. That's why this is called the good news. The deity of Christ, Jesus is God. The incarnation of Christ, God became human. Number three, the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Look at verses nine through 11. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have I mentioned that I love these words? (laughs) These verses teach us four important points about the exaltation of Christ. First, the source of Christ's exaltation. We see there in verse nine, God, this is God the Father. God the Father also has highly exalted him. That means that God has raised up Jesus to an exceeding height. He gave the incarnate Christ dominion and authority over all created things. That word therefore connects Christ's exaltation to his submission and obedience to God the Father. God rewarded his son for his obedience. And in exalting his son, God affirms his pleasure in him and approval of him. Number two, the title of Christ's exaltation. In verse nine, it says, God also has given him the name which is above every name. I believe that every word 
matters in the Bible. And I want you to see here that Paul says the name, not a name, the name. This is the name unique to Jesus. And here in verse nine, the name speaks of Christ's title. Now, I used to think that the name was Jesus. Until I started thinking that Jesus, in Hebrew it's Yeshua, Yeshua was a very common name in biblical times during the days of Jesus. It's our equivalent to Jacob or Jake. And I'm sure that we all know a Jake here or there. Now, is it blasphemous that they're called Jacob? I don't think that's the name that Paul is talking about here. The name that God gave his son, that is above every other name, the title that God gave his son is Lord. Lord. That's why when you read through the New Testament and you read about Jesus, the most frequent way that Jesus is revealed in the New Testament is as the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else can bear that title. It exclusively belongs to Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the title, the name Lord refers to Christ's deity, his power, his dignity, his authority, his honor, his dominion, and his worthiness of worship. And the name Lord is above every name. Jesus is supreme and over everyone and everything. And number three, the response to Christ's exaltation. In verses 10 and 11, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. These words anticipate a day when all created things will worship and honor the Lord Jesus. Every means all without exception. Those in heaven, all the saints, all the angels in heaven, those on earth, all humanity on earth, those under the earth, all the demons, all the souls in hell, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now for us as God's people, this means that we will bow in adoration. But for God's enemies, everyone who dies rejecting Christ, they will bow in humiliation. Romans 14 verses 10 through 12 tells us that this scene happens at the final judgment before Christ. Here's the application. You can either bow your knees before the Lord Jesus now to receive God's salvation. And if you're not a Christian this morning, again, I am pleading with you today, this morning, now is the right time. You can either bow your knee before the Lord Jesus now to receive God's salvation, or you will bow later and face God's judgment. Every one of us will bow. Worship the Lord Jesus today. And then number four, concerning the exaltation of Christ, the purpose of Christ's exaltation, we see in verse 11, all this happens to the glory of God the Father, God being glorified. The deity of Christ, Jesus is God. 
The incarnation of Christ, God became human. The exaltation of Christ, Jesus is Lord of all. Now, as we wrap up this message this morning, I want to wrap it up with a word of application. You know, there are two ways to apply this message. First, what we have here in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11 is an example, a Jesus example. In verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That word mind can be translated mindset It could also be translated attitude. You see, how we think impacts how we live. And so the Bible wants us to start thinking like Jesus so we can start living like Jesus. Now, this example that we just looked at here in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, it's connected to a teaching found in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. So if you're still there in Philippians 2, just go up a bit to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Here's the instruction. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the teaching. That's the instruction. And Jesus is the example of it. He shows us what that looks like. But there's a second application I want us to leave with this morning. Not only seeing the example of Christ, but let's exalt Christ. Praise and worship is our response to all that Christ is and to all that Christ does. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, okay, the Jesus I've been following, the Jesus I've been holding on to is not the Jesus that that guy has been talking about. then I pray that the Spirit of God would use the words this morning to direct your eyes to this Jesus. And what happens when you see Jesus is worship happens. Worship follows. Doctrine leads us into doxology. The wonder of Christ incites the worship of Christ. That's why we're gonna close this morning this way. I finished a bit early. And so we're going to pray. And as I pray, the pastors are going to come forward and they're going to be here in the front and they're going to be available to pray for you, to serve you. And also to my left, your right, there at the door, there's going to be some pastors waiting to greet you. If you have not given your heart to Jesus and this morning you heard us talk about Jesus and you're thinking, I want that Jesus, then we want you to go and connect with these pastors because they want to lead you to Christ. And then after we pray, we're going to sing a closing song And that closing song is going to be our response to the Lord Jesus Christ. That closing song is going to be 
our response to everything that we've learned about him, and we are just going to shout out his praise and shout out his worship because the Lord Jesus is that big and he is that worthy. Amen? So let's stand. Father, this morning, how we love you and how we thank you for the way that you revealed your son Jesus to us in your word. Father, this morning, we pray that we would live in this reality. And we pray that in all that we do, wherever we go, that our lives would be marked by spontaneous praise and worship that's directed to you. So I thank you, Lord, for the redeemed people of God in this place. And Lord, we also pray for those who still need to come to Christ. And you know, this morning, if that's you, if you haven't given your heart to Jesus and you know you need to give your life to Christ now, will you just pray this with me? Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God. I believe you died on the cross and rose again from the dead. I agree with you that I'm a sinner. I disobeyed you. And I failed you. Please cancel my debt. Forgive me of my sins. I receive you as my Savior. And help me to live for you. And Father, we pray for those who prayed that. And we ask that you would glorify yourself in them in all of us, and we are here to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.